2006, November 16th. Today is Lecture 38, Uranus and Neptune, which will begin in just a moment. So yesterday we started talking about the Jovian planets, and we talked about the two largest of the giant gas giants of the outer solar system, Jupiter and Saturn. I chose that pairing because Jupiter and Saturn are very, very similar in their properties. The slight subtle differences between Jupiter and Saturn are mainly due to differences in their mass, Saturn is lower mass and lower density. And Saturn is just a little bit further from the sun, so its outer atmosphere is a little bit icier, a little bit cloudier, and so the colorations are more subtle. But other than that, they're virtual twins. The next pairing of planets is also chosen on that same basis. These two planets are both Jovian gas giants, but as we're going to see, they're very distinct from Jupiter and Saturn in many ways. In fact, some people have even proposed, although it hasn't stuck, there's a separate class, perhaps, of Jovians. Some people call them the ice giants or something like that, but not too many people subscribe to that. We're going to talk about Uranus and Neptune. They're also near twins of each other and have some very interesting joint properties. So today's key ideas is we're going to meet the two outermost of the Jovian planets, Uranus and Neptune. They share nearly identical structures and compositions. They really are very close twins of each other. They're very similar in size and very similar in mass. Uranus, we're going to see, however, has some interesting differences. It's going to lack a source of internal heat, unlike the case we saw with Jupiter and Saturn, and so it's going to be nearly featureless. It's not going to have a lot of weather. A little bit is there, but not in the same way that we saw weather very prominently in the outer atmospheres of Jupiter and Saturn. It's also a funny planet in that its axis is tilted by 98 degrees. It's literally just about laying over on its side relative to the plane of its orbit, and this results in very extreme seasons. And we'll see a little picture of that and describe how that's working. Neptune, the, other, the outermost of the Jovian planets, and in fact the outermost of the planets of the solar system, does seem to have a source of internal heat, and as a consequence, it does have a relatively active atmosphere. It's not quite as active as we saw in Jupiter and Saturn. It's a lower mass object, but it still actually has weather. So weather in the outer reaches of the solar system, where you're far from the sun, is going to be primarily driven by things like sources of internal heat. And then finally, having reviewed the basic properties of Uranus and Neptune, we'll say a little bit about their moon systems, and then we'll do just a quick overview comparison of all four Jovian planets together to show you the similarities and differences among them, just to, to sort of hammer down that, the principles. So today we're going to be meeting the last two planets in the solar system, Uranus and Neptune. Just simply at a glance, we really are starting to now get out into the outer reaches of the solar system. The planet Uranus has a semi-major axis of 19, 19 astronomical units, which means it takes about 84 years to circle the sun. We're now out to planets so far away that these planets are not visible to the naked eye. Maybe a very sharp-eyed person knowing exactly where to look might be able to spot Uranus, but it'd be almost indistinguishable from hundreds upon hundreds of similar faint stars. You'd have to be really sharp-eyed to see it. So now we're in the realm of the planets that were not discovered until the invention of the telescope. The orbit is very nearly circular with a very small eccentricity, and it's very nearly in the ecliptic plane. The inclination's only less than a degree. Neptune is the most distant of the outer planets. It's got a semi-major axis of approximately 30 astronomical units, giving it a period of 165 years. So it takes a long time to go around out there. There isn't a lot of sunlight out here. 30 astronomical units means 30 squared or 1 900th the sunlight received from the sun on the Earth. So out here, if you're going to get anything going on, the sun's not going to help you. You're going to have to have some eternal heat. The orbit is very close to circular. It's got a very small eccentricity. And it's only got a slight tilt, a little under 10, 2 degrees out of the plane of the ecliptic. Uranus, basically, uh, Uranus and Neptune are the two outermost and very similar twin planets of the outer solar system.
Neptune's going to actually turn out to be somewhat important to us. It's going to play a role dynamically in the outer solar system that Jupiter plays in the inner solar system that we're going to see when we talk about the small bodies of the solar system in about a week and a half. Here's pictures of Uranus and Neptune side by side to scale. And again, I've drawn the, I've drawn, put the Earth in here. Again, all scale to their proper radii. Uranus is the smaller of the two outer Jovian planets at about 14 and a half times the mass of the Earth. And it's a little over four Earth radii in extent. Whereas Neptune is about 17 times the mass of the Earth, but it's a bit denser. It's got a little bit more gravity. It's contracted a bit more and it's a little under four times the mass of the Earth. So bigger mass does not always necessarily mean bigger bulk. What really matters is how the internal constituents have arranged themselves. Neptune is just a little bit denser than Uranus. And again, for scale there is the Earth to give you some idea of the size. Also, the appearance of these planets stands up. Number one, they're blue. They're really obviously blue. Uranus is really kind of disappointing to look like at look at a visible light, other than that kind of nice aquamarine blue there doesn't seem to be a whole lot going on here on the planet. You don't actually see much by way of features. We'll be able to go into the infrared. We can amplify the contrast on some of those features. But Uranus really is a very subtle. It's almost like an aquamarine billiard ball, as one of my colleagues once described it. Whereas Neptune, you really can see that it also is blue, but there does seem to be some weather going on. There's high white clouds, and then there's this great dark spot sitting here. And you can even see sort of hints of banding structure like we saw on on Jupiter and Saturn. And indeed, there are going to be latitudinal wind systems. You do get belts and zones, but they're far more subtle in the outer solar system. Now, the spacecraft have studied these planets. In fact, most of the studies of things we know about them have come from telescopic observations, either from the Hubble Space Telescope in recent years or from the Voyager 2 spacecraft. Voyager 2 was originally intended to go to Jupiter and maybe make it to Saturn. It was showing itself to be such a long-lived spacecraft that it was redirected around Saturn to give it a gravity boost to bring it out towards Uranus and Neptune. In the 1970s and 80s, when the Voyager 2 mission was going on, all of the Jovian planets happened to just coincidentally be on the same sort of same general area, same quadrant of the solar system. And so it made a grand tour possible. There was a much more ambitious space mission originally designed called the Grand Tour mission. It was designed back in the heyday of the lunar um, project when there was lots and lots of NASA money running around. And the idea would be to have a single, very sophisticated robotic spacecraft visit every single outer planet, including Pluto. That mission fell through. It was going to be too expensive, but JPL came up with a double mission, which was much less ambitious, building the Voyagers, which were the most sophisticated robotic craft ever built. And the idea was just to go to Jupiter and Saturn, but Voyager 2 is a real winner. Um, it made it all the way out to Uranus in the year 1986 and Neptune in 1989. I have a really uh, a real fond spot for Voyager 2. Voyager 2 and, and I have followed each other through our various careers. Voyager, one, Voyager 2 passed by Jupiter when I was finishing high school and starting college. Uh, it passed by Saturn when I was in college at Caltech. It passed by Uranus when I was at UC Santa Cruz working on my doctorate. And it passed by Neptune just before I moved here from Texas as my shifted out from a postdoc job. So I've seemed to be following Voyager around. It's on its way out of the solar system now. Both of the planets have also been extensively studied in recent years by the Hubble Space Telescope. With, from its position above the Earth's atmosphere, it gives it unprecedented clarity to be able to see tracking weather and tracking structures on, the, in, on these planets. There have also been ground-based studies searching for, for moons and rings and things like that. 
uh, long-term monitoring of weather patterns. Infrared imaging has been particularly interesting because a lot of these have, these, both these planets have primarily methane outer atmospheres, and methane has strong absorption features in the infrared, so you can play some tricks using methane imaging to actually enhance the contrast in these otherwise subtly um, colored planets and actually be able to track weather systems. And then a new technology is starting to be employed, adaptive optics, where people use lasers or very, very fast rubber, not rubber, flexible mirrors to detwinkle the turbulence in the atmosphere with very high-speed cameras. And we'll show a few pictures later on today that have been taken actually from the ground, which rival images taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. It's a harbinger of a brand new technology that's going to carry us forward into the future for studying these planets, because there currently are no present plans for more visits to the outer solar system, or certainly not to the, to the gas giants of the outer solar system. Now, one really important question is, and we saw Jupiter and Saturn yesterday, and they're kind of pale yellowish, whitish with red bands and stuff like that. They're very colorful planets. Uranus and, and Neptune are blue. They're just completely obviously blue. Why the sudden change in color? Their composition is more or less the same as that on of, your, of Jupiter and Saturn, at least apparently, why are they blue? Well, the answer happens to be that because they're so far from the sun, they're out in a place where methane becomes a principal component of the atmospheres. Methane very strongly absorbs red light and allows blue light to pass on through. So if you looked at the atmospheres of, of Uranus and Neptune, this could be either one of them, there's actually a methane haze layer over the, over the cloud tops of the atmosphere. That methane haze layer, the sunlight has to, get, has to pass through that layer to hit the icy cloud tops below. Now, if there was no methane layer at all, sunlight of all colors would come through, hit the tops of the clouds, and then bounce right off, and Uranus and Neptune would basically have the same color as sunlight because it would just be shining by reflected sunlight. But because there's this methane layer there, methane very strongly absorbs. It's a molecule, so it's got very, very fat absorption bands. Thousands upon thousands of little absorption lines overlapping. Those lines strongly absorb at red and infrared wavelengths. So as sunlight comes through, it's a mix of all colors, red, orange, green, and blue shown in this cartoon. The red and orange light gets blocked by the methane. It just gets absorbed by the methane, and it heats up the outer methane layer, kind of a greenhouse effect from the outside. Whereas the green and blue light, there's no absorption bands for methane in green and blue, so the green and blue light just passes on through until it hits the ice clouds on the tops, and then it bounces on back. So this methane acts like methane layer acts like a filter. It sucks away the red and orange light, but lets the, red, the blue, green and blue light pass on through and then bounce on back. And that's why they have this sort of greenish-blue color to them. So it really isn't that they're all methane, it's just the presence of the chemistry is just right and the conditions are just right to form this very, very high methane haze layer in the, in the atmospheres of these planets. And so they say, take on this nifty little bluish tinge. Well, if we sliced open Uranus and Neptune, the naive expectation would be that these things would look exactly like little tiny miniature versions of Jupiter and Saturn. But that turns out not to be correct. Here's a little cartoon sort of taking a, a quarter slice out of Uranus and Neptune. And what we find is inside we do in fact find rocky cores, but these rocky cores are relatively small. They're only about the mass of the Earth, whereas on Jupiter and Saturn we found these rock ice cores which were 10 or 15 times the mass of the Earth. Outside of that, instead of being a deep metallic hydrogen mantle, these are low-mass planets. They're only 15 and 17 times the mass of the Earth. 
So you really accumulate a layer of slushy ice. So you have a rocky core, it's differentiated, the heavy rock sinks to the bottom. The ices stay on top, and they're kept frozen because of pressure freezing. It still is very hot inside, but under high pressure conditions, you can actually have ice at ridiculously hot temperatures because of the high pressure. It's basically an effect of pressure freezing, just like for the same way the Earth's iron core, can, inner iron core can be solid because of pressure freezing, even though the temperature of that iron core is far above the melting point of iron on the surface. So you get a rocky core, a slushy ice mantle, and then a relatively shallow molecular hydrogen outer atmosphere. So what's going on here? Why are these things quite so different? Why is it that we don't see these deep mantles of molecular metallic hydrogen? Well, part of the reason is they're lower mass. There's less mass, there's less internal pressure. They don't reach the kinds of high pressures you need to make metallic hydrogen. You need to have pressures in excess of 4 million atmospheres. Jupiter has 318 times the mass of the Earth. Saturn has 90, about 96 times the mass of the Earth in round numbers. That's a huge amount of mass, and it's more than sufficient to build up that internal pressure. But when you get down to sizes of about 15 or 17 times the mass of the Earth, you don't get that pressure at all. In fact, it doesn't even get high enough pressure to destroy and compress the ices down onto the core, and so you keep an icy, slushy mantle. And then this thin sort of outer layer of molecular hydrogen out to the very outer layers. This is part of the reason, this internal structure here is why these planets have a little bit higher density. Right? They're not gas all the way down. They're actually rock and ice. These are actually higher density than either Jupiter or Saturn. And it's also the reason why people have proposed the term ice giants as one of their names. There really is a fundamental difference in composition, overall composition, between Uranus and Neptune and Jupiter and Saturn when you look at them in detail. They still have a lot of hydrogen, they have a lot of volatiles, but not quite in the same proportions as we saw in Jupiter and Saturn. They didn't grow as big. Part of the reason for this is these are in the outer part of the solar system. We're way, way far out in the solar nebula now. The solar nebula has a lot of stuff on the inside and then it kind of peters out exponentially as you go further and further out. Jupiter sucked up most of the material in the inner portion of the solar system. Saturn grabbed another big chunk. But by the time you get out to the orbit of Uranus and Neptune, you're starting to run out of raw materials. You can't build up a 10 or 15 Earth mass core exactly with rock and ice, and then have, start, which you, you can you know, back a bit. You can build up a rocky core of about, about an Earth mass, and you can collect a bunch of ices because it's really cold, and you can get up to about 10 odd Earth masses worth of this stuff, but when you start sucking up the hydrogen around you, there isn't that much hydrogen to suck up, and so you never grow to the tremendous sizes that we see of Jupiter and Saturn. So it's a combination of having the big core, but the big core didn't help because there wasn't enough hydrogen around for them to hoover up. The way to think about the hoovering process during the formation of the solar system is, well, think of a Hoover vacuum cleaner. Imagine you're going to clean the floor with just the tube. Well, you're going to have, if, and you've got a floor covered with, with flour and stuff. What if you just walked in a line? Well, all you're going to do is you're going to suck up the flour at the opening of the hose plus a little bit extra on either side, which is kind of the suck zone of the hose. Outside of that, all you're going to do is just clean a stripe. Same is true of gravity hoovering up gas within a solar nebula. You only grab gas in your cross-section, the stuff that collides direct with you, and the stuff you can just reach out and grab. But there's a limited distance that gravity can reach out and grab. And so what you do is you only carve out a groove in the disk. You can't get the stuff that's too far away on either inner or outer part of the disk to grab. 
And before you can even try to hope that it comes in, the sunlight comes up and blows all the gas away. So these guys never had a chance to grow, and that's why they're so small. They were out in the outer reaches where there wasn't enough stuff to grow from. Let's look individually now at each of these planets and talk about their atmospheres. Okay, the outer atmospheres, again, of both planets are blue because of the presence of methane absorption. Uranus is basically virtually featureless. In fact, it looks kind of like a hazy blue ball when you look at it at visible light. The reason for this is that unlike the case of Jupiter and Saturn, Uranus does not produce more heat internally than it receives from the sun. Most of Uranus's external heat seems to be coming primarily from sunlight with a very there is a contribution of internal heat, but it doesn't match or exceed the sunlight fraction like we saw in the case of Jupiter and Saturn which are like emitting two and a half times more radiation than they receive from the sun. As a consequence of lacking a very large source of internal heat, the cloud layers stay cold and so they stay below the haze layer. Every now and then you'll get a little bit of local upwelling and some of those clouds will come billowing up above the haze layer. And once they get above the haze layer, then those cloud tops are on top of the methane haze layer and they reflect sunlight back directly and so they appear whitish. But when they sink back down again below the haze layer, they sort of lose their identity and become blue again. So the result of this is why there's a relatively uniform appearance. But occasionally, you do see storms begin to emerge. Now, in recent days, Uranus has moved around to a position where the sun is nearly on the equator. We're about springtime on Uranus. And in the infrared, this is actually a picture taken with the 10-meter Keck telescopes on Mauna Kea using um, laser adaptive optics, starts to show there is a little bit of subtle banding. You do see latitudinal bands, and you do see weather. You do actually see some clouds beginning to emerge above. This red line here is, in fact, the, one of the rings of, of Uranus. Both all, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune all have rings of various types. These are very dark rings. So you can see this sort of horizontal banding, but you've got to go into the infrared and look in, a, in bands where you get very, very strong methane absorption in and out of those methane absorption bands to amp the contrast. If you just looked at this with your eye, you would be very hard pressed to make out these very subtle features. So the infrared helps to, to enhance the contrast quite a bit. So there is some weather, but it's very, very subtle. It's not the kind of violent, vigorous weather we saw on Jupiter and Saturn. Neptune is a different story. Neptune actually has a fairly substantial source of internal heat. Remember, it's also much further away from the sun, so it doesn't need to have much internal heat before it can actually exceed the input of sunlight. Remember, it only gets one nine hundredth the sunlight the Earth receives. But if you add up all the infrared radiation coming off of Neptune, it's emitting about 2.7 times more radiation than it receives from the sun. The source of internal heat, which is greater than that you know, per unit mass from Uranus, gives it a much more active atmosphere. You see dark belts and bright zones and clouds of methane ice. And you even see some dark oval cyclonic storms. This cyclonic storm was discovered by the Voyager 2 spacecraft, and people were really hopeful that it was an analog of the Great Red Spot on Jupiter. You'll remember from yesterday, the Great Red Spot is a gigantic cyclonic storm. It's bigger than the Earth, and it's lasted for at least 300, almost 400 years. It's been visible since Galileo turned his telescope to the sky in, in the early 1600s. The surprise was, when the Hubble went out and looked at, at, at Neptune, that the Great Dark Spot was gone. So this was actually a cyclonic storm, but it was much less, less long-lived than the big storms on Jupiter. Part of that may be the differences of the atmospheric structure, the fact it's colder, the internal heat. You can't quite sustain a storm like that. 
Here's some close-ups of these things. This is the great dark spot. Remember, what we're really seeing is the great dark spot. The cyclonic storm is actually in the main portion of the cloud belts, but we're viewing it through the methane haze. That's why everything takes on this blue hazy appearance. But nearby that, this pressure system, there actually is the formation of some very high clouds, which have penetrated up above the methane haze layer. And so you're starting to see them as white on top of that. They're actually blocking sunlight and bouncing the sunlight off before it gets absorbed by the methane haze layer below. That's more dramatic over here, where you actually see these very high ice clouds in the, in the, in the atmosphere of Neptune. You can tell that they're high. You can, in fact, see the shadows of these clouds on the lower cloud deck there. You can see how they're alternating bands of white and dark. Down here again, white and dark. So the sunlight's coming in from an angle like this. Because these are above the main haze layer, they appear white. But as they vanish or sink back down, then they get lost below the haze layer and the blue light reemerges. So Uranus has very little weather because it has very little source of internal heat. It doesn't have enough sunlight to be able to power weather. So what weather exists is extremely subtle and very episodic. Whereas Neptune has a source of internal energy, and that source of internal energy drives relatively vigorous weather patterns. It's not as big, it's not as, as active as Jupiter or Saturn, but it still shows very much the same sorts of weather patterns. High and low pressure bands and zones, cyclonic storms in the boundaries between those zones. And even though it's very, very hard to measure, people are starting to measure the wind speeds. They're slower because it's a less active atmosphere, but you still end up with high winds. So you still end up these very similar kinds of atmospheric dynamics. Now, Uranus is an oddity. And I mentioned before that Uranus is laid over on its side. It's got an inclination of its axis of 98 degrees with respect to the tilt of the plane of the orbit. So if your plane of your orbit's like the plane of the stage here, if you were aligned perpendicular, this would be called a zero tilt. The Earth, of course, has a 23 and a half degree tilt. I'm not even going to try to do Uranus. Uranus is tilted over so far that it not only lays down in the, in the plane of the stage, but it actually lies about eight degrees below it. So it's practically on its way to being upside down. Now, Uranus takes quite some time, takes 84 years, to go around the sun. So as a consequence, it takes quite some time to go through one Uranus year. This means that at various times of the 84-year cycle through Uranus's seasons, you're going to get very extreme seasonal variations. So for example, in 1985, when Voyager 2 was um, flying by, actually Voyager 2 flew by in 1986, just before that was what we'll call northern summer, because the north pole, which is the rotation axis north pole, of Uranus was practically pointing at the sun. Actually, it was pointing about eight degrees below the sun, but it was close enough. Now we wait about uh, 21 years, 84 divided by four, and we get around to this point, and now the sun is actually on the equator this year of Uranus. So Uranus is actually going through, uh, what would you, I guess we'd be, see, if this is northern summer, this would be northern fall and southern spring on the planet Uranus. By the year 2027, Uranus's south pole will be facing towards the sun. And then finally, again in 2048, it will become northern spring and southern fall. So Uranus goes through very, very extreme seasons. We're down here in 1985, half the planet's in sunlight and half the planet's in darkness. What this is going to do is it's going to give you some very extreme, not only seasonal variations, but it probably alters the circulation patterns in the atmosphere. Uranus was a lot more subtle looking when Voyager 2 flew by than it is now when Keck is imaging it and Hubble Space Telescope are imaging it. 
Why? Why is that sudden change from the aquamarine billiard ball I showed at the beginning was the Voyager picture, and then that picture with the rings and, and the bands, and you could see the high clouds, was taken just about a year and a half ago. Well, the reason for that, of course, is that this season, all the sunlight's being focused on one spot, which is just always pointing all the time at the sun throughout the, was it 10 or 12 hour day of, of, of Uranus. So you get heating on this side, you're freezing the other side, and so you'll actually get wind patterns, which will start to be a little bit of solar-driven wind, because there's not a lot of internal heat, will actually drive winds from pole to pole. So you get a north-south wind flow, and that opposes the rotation, and so you break up a lot of the weather patterns that you would expect to get for belts and zones. And so even when you looked at Uranus in the infrared with the Voyager's infrared cameras, you didn't see a whole lot. Well, now in 2006, the sun's on the equator. And as Uranus goes through its uh, what, 10 or 12 hour day, of course it alternates between sunlight and darkness. It's kind of more or less normal, like we, we experience during spring here on Earth. Of course, we're out of Uranus, so it's you know, gas giants, so it's a little bit different. But now you don't get those powerful polar flows. And now the, the weather systems that are reasserting themselves are the latitudinal weather systems like we see on Jupiter and Saturn and even that we see on the Earth, right? The trade winds and the various tropical and, and, temporal and uh, temperate climate winds. So Uranus's appearance will actually change dramatically as you go from these extreme summer or winter seasons to the now current spring seasons. So this is a good time for Hubble to be getting fixed with its new cameras and for ground-based adaptive optics to be working for places like Keck with new, new generation infrared cameras because for the first time since these technologies were invented back here in the 1980s, right? All these fancy technologies are, were all invented back around when Uranus was boring. Now those technologies are really coming into general use about the time Uranus is getting interesting. So there's been a sudden upswing in Uranus studies, and they're going to do their best until the year 2027. And by then, the hope is that, that we'll be able to have enough of these assets on the planet to see what the actual transition between the seasons is like on Uranus. It's a, it's a rare circumstance in which you get normally in a, normally in a planetary atmosphere, like even the Earth or, or Venus or someplace like that, the heating and cooling is, is pretty straightforward. You don't really have tremendous changes. The planets sort of do this sort of kind of barbecue role relative to the sun because they're their planetary rotation axes tend to put the sun at or near their equators. Even, even on the Earth and Mars, which have 25 degree tilts, or even you know, Saturn has a 27 degree tilt, you still have kind of tropics and temporal zones. And your poles kind of go in and out of darkness, but on a very small time, on a very, fairly short basis. So now Uranus is a place where we can see extreme variations. And we can start asking, well, now if I go to a planet which has extreme variations, how does the atmosphere respond? You might say, well, why do we care on Earth? Well, one of the reasons we care is, you know, we build things like climate models to predict things like, or try to predict things like what happens with global warming and that. And how do we know those models are right? After all, we only have one atmosphere, and it's kind of not good to have one test case. But by comparing to the atmospheres all across the solar system, we can see if we've got the right physics and the right math and the right calculations in our models by being able to handle the, all the different extreme cases we see in the solar system. So it's not just an academic interest. There really is, a, there really is a, some other, other purposes for studying this. And Uranus is a very interesting laboratory for doing that. You just have to be, as you can tell, very, very patient. Um, 
takes about uh, 42 years to go from summer to winter, and that's uh, longer than most scientists' careers. This is kind of a multi-generational thing, but you know, sometimes science has to work that way. Now, just to make, a, make a, a quick detour for a second talking about the planets, talk about their moon systems. Um, Uranus and Neptune have a lot of moons. Uranus has 27 moons by current count, but none of them are very big. None of them are big enough to be called giant moons in the sense that we're going to be talking about the giant moons of Jupiter and Saturn next week. Um, there's five icy spherical moons. They have the names Miranda, Ariel, Umbriel, Titania, and Oberon. Um, for those of you who are used to, and we're used in the solar system to always hearing Greek gods and Roman goddesses and things like that. And all of a sudden, these are different names. You might actually recognize these. These are all characters from Shakespeare. Um, a Midsummer Night's Dream, for example, Titania and Oberon. Miranda was, of course, from uh, uh, The Tempest and so forth. And then there are 22 really tiny, irregular icy moons that look like things like captured comet nuclei or small chunks of the Kuiper Belt. Um, and Ariel and Umbriel, I should mention, are not actually... Uh, actually, Ariel is from also from, uh, from The Tempest. Umbriel is actually from, from, uh, from Pope. So... What you see in these orbits here that I've drawn on the right is there's a few that are in relatively circular orbits, but a bunch of them are in very irregular elliptical orbits, and they're going sometimes some of them are going retrograde and some of them are going prograde. When you this is very different than what we see like on the Earth or on, on Mars, where you got you know two regular satellites kind of tooling around in nice flat planes. These things are actually going not only in this not only non-circular and elliptical, but some of them are out of the plane. When you see a lot of chaotic orbits like this in a moon system, that's telling you that capture was involved in, in those moons. They didn't actually form with the planet per se. They were captured by the planet, by, using, by gravity as, as one planet passes by another. The details of how you go about the capture are kind of complicated, and we're not going to go into that in detail, but it looks like it's a fairly efficient process because Uranus has managed to do it for 27 objects so far, and the survey is continuing to look for more moons. Here's a, a little montage based on images from Voyager 2 of Uranus and the five brightest of these moons. These had all been discovered, by the way, from telescopic observations on the Earth. Ariel, Miranda, Titania, Oberon, and Umbriel. They're all sort of interesting worlds in themselves, but we know very little about them because we only know what we found out during the very brief pass by Voyager 2. Neptune, currently only 13 moons are known, one of which is a giant moon. That's the moon Triton. It's a very, very large, very cold, icy moon, and it's orbiting backwards. It's just going the wrong way. So Triton was also captured, but under some very odd circumstances. And we'll say more about Triton later, because its properties are really more like those of Pluto and Eris, the giant Kuiper Belt objects of the outer solar system. It really doesn't fit in, so we'll, we'll defer talking about Triton until later. The rest of these are a bunch of tiny little irregular moons. Here's a couple of them, Larissa and Proteus, um, which are shown here in these pictures from Voyager 2. They're tiny little irregular dirty ice balls. Now, one might ask, why, if Neptune is bigger, doesn't it have more moons? Well, part of this actually turns out to be a selection effect. One is that Voyager 2 only spent a little bit of time going past Neptune, and so it was only able to image just so much of it because it blew by really quickly. And it found most of these extra moons were found by the, by the Voyager spacecraft. A couple have been found by the ground. It turns out, in the last well, many years, Neptune has been in that part of the ecliptic that carries it through the plane of the Milky Way. 
So we view Neptune against a very, very crowded background of all the thousands upon millions of stars in the Milky Way. So it's really hard to spot little satellites in a very crowded star field. In the next last few years, however, Neptune has begun to move along that section of the ecliptic that is climbing out of the ecliptic plane. Uh, I'm sorry, climbing out of the galactic plane. And so it's in the next few years, some of us are starting to get interested in, well, maybe it's time to start imaging Neptune to start looking for outer irregular moons because now we don't have to try to find needles in a haystack. We get a much less crowded background to find them. So there's an example of how what you can learn about something sometimes is dependent on when you can observe it. Anyway, back to the moons. This is Triton. This is the giant moon of, of Neptune. It's a gigantic ice ball. It's basically very much similar to, in, in many ways, the properties of Pluto and Eris. And we'll talk about it in, um, in a couple of weeks here, towards the last week of class, when we talk about the outer solar system. But I just want to introduce it to you here. It really stands out as different. It's the only giant moon among both of the outer Jovians. Well, to sort of wrap up our discussion of the Jovians, there really isn't a lot you can say about Neptune and, and, and Uranus once you get past all the basic facts that I presented. Presence or absence of internal heat driving weather or per- keeping the weather subtle, the, the fact that they're basically large, big ice slush balls. Let's now go back a bit and talk about what these planets are all like together. The first thing, of course, is to look at their sizes. This is a montage of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, and the Earth, all here imaged to scale. These are all gas giants. They have no solid surfaces, and they're, they are composed primarily of hydrogen, helium, with a strong admixture of gases, uh, of rock and ices. If we look at them in comparison, of course, there's great contrast. Jupiter and Saturn are very, very large planets, 318 and 96 times the mass of the Earth, respectively. Their atmospheres are very dense, very, very deep metallic hydrogen mantles that are present because they have very, very large atmospheres. They can achieve very, very high pressures, and under high pressures, hydrogen achieves this weird metallic state. They also have very dense rocky cores with very large sizes. They were, able, they were in a region of the solar system where there was still enough raw material to build up 10 or 15 Earth mass cores. When we go out to Uranus and Neptune, they're also very close in size to each other, but very much smaller than Jupiter and Saturn, 15 and 17 Earth masses respectively. They didn't build up very, very large rocky cores. They only built up about Earth size because there wasn't much rock out there in the outer parts where they formed. But they were able to accumulate a lot of ices. And so you get this kind of slushy, semi-liquid water and methane mantles that are consisting of all these sort of slushy ices. They're basically, they're big slush balls with outer hydrogen atmosphere. So they gathered a little bit of hydrogen to add to their bulk, but not a whole lot. They only were able to grow 17 and 15 Earth masses. Now, their atmospheres still contain lots of hydrogen and helium. Even though methane is the dominant thing that colors it, hydrogen and helium are still the dominant contributors. Now, we saw this plot the other day when we were talking about the terrestrial planets and making the point about retention of atmospheres. What this plots on the x-axis is the escape speed from the planet as a function of the planet's surface temperature. And then the speed of a, of a, sca- a speed that different molecules would have, to ha- would have at that temperature to see uh, just due to their thermal motions. When you plot a point here, if the point for the planet, which gives the surface, or in the case of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, these are the cloud top temperatures. And I ask, what is the escape velocity from Jupiter and Saturn? Well, they're huge masses. 
So they have very large escape velocities. The escape velocity from Saturn is about 30 kilometers a second. The escape velocity for Jupiter is almost 60 kilometers a second. Compare that to, to 11 kilometers a second for Earth. They're more massive, but remember, they're also bigger, so you're, f you're starting out further from their centers. Uranus and Neptune also have fairly large escape velocities, about 20 and 25 kilometers per second, respectively. But they're out in the outer solar system, so they're a lot colder than the Earth and Mars and all the terrestrial planets. And so all the gases that you can make up in their atmosphere, hydrogen, both in atomic and molecular forms, helium, and then water, nitrogen, carbon dioxide, methane would be a line here about the same place as the water line. All of these are moving, all these atoms are moving really slow. So slow, they have no hope whatsoever of escaping from the gravity of any of these planets. So the fact that they've formed out in this outer solar system, they're big, you have a lot of gravity, and it's cold, simply enhances their ability to hold on to those atmospheres. Because the points for each of these planets are way high above the line for hydrogen, tells you that they can become hydrogen sinks. They can become places where hydrogen can gather and you can grow large planets. Whereas when you get down to things like Earth, Venus, and Mars, they've got plenty of mass to be sure, but hydrogen can't be held onto. So again, it's this whole point I've come back to again of atmosphere retention is an important one. It's not just gravity, it's gravity and temperature. So if you're big and you're cold, it helps a lot. It wouldn't help if you were big and hot. For example, if I made Uranus, took Uranus and tried to drag it down into the orbit of Venus, its temperature would be down here, very hot because it's close to the sun, it would actually start evaporating its hydrogen and helium, hydrogen away at least. So it's not just big, it's got to be big and cold to hang on to the gas. Unless you're Jupiter, at which point you're just plain big. The interiors of the Jovian planets, again, we see both interiors and surface here in this picture. You see very large, deep interiors, large rocky cores, 10 or 15 times the mass of the Earth. Enough high pressure that the pressure can rise above that 4 million Earth atmospheres, and you form these deep metallic hydrogen mantles. The outer atmospheres are heavy hydrogen atmospheres because you have a big mass, you're in a cold zone, you can gather lots of hydrogen and grow to gigantic size. And because there's a lot of hydrogen there and a lot of mass, these planets are contracting under their own weight, they're generating a lot of internal energy. That, combined with a closer proximity to the sun, means that you have these very, very colorful, violent weather atmospheres. So you see a lot of color in these things, there's a lot of complex chemistry going on, powered by heat, and you also see a lot of weather, the very strong banding structures. When you walk out to Uranus and Neptune, they're smaller. They only have Earth-sized rocky cores. The outer mantles are ices rather than metallic hydrogen because they aren't big enough to, to have high enough pressures. The pressure never reaches the point to form metallic hydrogen. They don't have really big, deep hydrogen atmospheres because there wasn't much hydrogen to grab and their masses always stayed small. So it's kind of a double whammy out there. And you end up with a light blue color because now you're out in the cold reaches of the solar system. Methane becomes the dominant gas because the other stuff kind of just sinks out as ices, and you get this blue methane color. So again, kind of recapitulating a lot of stuff, the changes in color, the changes of internal structure have to do with both location in the solar system and the size and how big they grew, and their size determines the presence or absence of internal energy, and we're kind of right on the boundary here. Neptune's got a source of internal energy, but Uranus has a very small one. So they're right down on the dividing line between being able to power their own weather and not. 
The final piece of these things are the magnetic fields. Now we've already seen the magnetic fields of Jupiter, or mentioned briefly the magnetic fields of Jupiter and Saturn yesterday. One basic fact is all of the Jovian planets have very strong magnetic fields. Jupiter's is the strongest by far. Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune actually have magnetic fields of roughly comparable strength and physical extent. So they're all actually fairly similar to each other in terms of just strength and kind of how far out the fields reach. And Jupiter just stands up. It's the 800-pound gorilla of the solar system. It has a gigantic gravity field, a gigantic magnetic field. It just, it just causes all kinds of trouble. Now, these are good because we can use these magnetic fields to measure the rotation periods. This is how you measure the rotation period of a gas giant. You can't look at the cloud tops because of the weather and the winds, but you watch the modulation of radio radiation coming from particles accelerated by their magnetic fields, and that modulation lets you see what the deep interior is doing. So this is actually how we know, in part, about what's going on in the deep interior. We also, this tells us that the deep interiors must be semi-liquid. Because if you don't have a semi-liquid interior, you don't get circulation patterns. And if you don't get circulation, you don't run a dynamo, and you don't get a strong magnetic field. So the presence of a magnetic field tells us that the interior must be semi-liquid. In the case of Jupiter and Saturn, that's liquid metallic hydrogen. In the case of Uranus and Neptune, it's probably liquid circulation in the Isis. Now, it's kind of strange to think about Isis being semi-liquid and circulating, but in fact, that's probably the case. Now, what's interesting, though, is there really is a difference if you look in detail. In, your, in Jupiter and Saturn, those interior magnetic fields are really anchored on the cores. Uranus and Neptune are weird. <laughs> the fields aren't anchored on the core. They're off-center. In fact, the rotation axes are completely misaligned. If you, if you think about magnets like a little North Pole, South Pole magnet you probably play with in, in, in high school or grade school science classes, Normally, the way we think about the Earth and, and its magnetic field is that they're centered on the core, but they're slightly misaligned. The magnetic pole of the Earth is not the same as the rotation pole of the Earth. Nearest Neptune, not only is the magnet off-center, but the pole is just sort of tweaked in some completely random direction. The fields are just way off-center. In fact, in Neptune, it's 55% off-center. The center of the field is like halfway out through from the center. It's really weird. So let's just draw a picture of that because words don't quite suffice. Jupiter's magnetic field is very strongly tied to its core, and it's tilted by about 10 degrees with respect to its axis. So it kind of swings around, and that swing around is what gives us the rotation speed. Uh, Saturn's magnetic field is perfectly aligned with its rotation axis to our ability to measure, and it's perfectly tied to the core, but it's kind of small. It isn't as big a magnetic field, and it kind of just rotates around with the planet and doesn't do much. Uranus and Neptune. Uranus, there's the magnetic pole, and there's the rotation pole. Uh, they're off by 59 degrees, and it's just about 30-odd percent off-center. Neptune, they're misaligned by 47 degrees in terms of their axes, and the center is like halfway out from the center. <laughs> no idea. People, people have no idea why it's doing that. Now, it isn't a very strong field, so that's probably part of that's a clue. right? Really strong fields, well, okay, Saturn's kind of an exception, but really strong fields need those big, have those big, highly conductive metallic hydrogen interiors. So you build up really big fields, and you anchor them really solidly. Down here, we may be seeing a much more transient phenomenon. It may be much more variable in time, because we've got circulation in icy liquid or semi-liquid material. Ices are not as electrically conductive as metallic hydrogen. 
And so you're not going to build up big fields per se in, in situ, but you may do some strange things. And so maybe what we're seeing has got some explanation, but we still haven't got an idea how to explain it. But it's good, right? Mysteries, mysteries are always good. Things to explain and try to explain away are always part of the fun of this game. Any questions? Okay, well, good. Well, I'll see you all at the test tomorrow.